You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, for whatever reason, John has given me a second chance to be up here, and he's not out of town. Um, if, I, if we haven't met, my name is Ryan Oaks. I'm the student minister here at Highland. Um, it's a privilege to serve our teenagers on a regular basis, and uh, I have to admit that it is quite refreshing to be in front of adults today. Um, so, you know, I'll tell you guys what we have to tell our students. If you guys could just pay attention, don't talk to your peers, you know, stay off your phones, things like that. I trust that you guys will do a better job of that. Um, so would you guys be an act of grace to me this morning by not behaving like teenagers? Um, and for those of you, our students that are in here, love you guys. You're all amazing. Don't worry. Uh, so guys, we are in this series called Mountaintops, and I'm a note taker, so I'll just tell you from the top, we will be in Genesis 22, focused on Mount Moriah. So you guys can keep your Bibles there. I'll, I'll flip to a few other scriptures, but they'll be on the screen, because that'll be our, our main passage. And I, I really love this series, Mountaintops. It's got this very uh, almost literal and metaphorical illustration to it. You see, if, if you're anything like me, more often than not, when you think of a mountaintop, you uh, would think of something similar to, to what you'll see on the screen. Uh, this is, uh, I did not draw this, um, but my five-year-old niece, Rainy, drew it. Um, and as you can see by the heart, it has no relations to the mountains, but I'm her favorite uncle. Uh, Self-proclaimed, but obviously also true. Uh, but these are the mountains we think of. Right? When we think of mountains, we think peaks. We think that they are just triangles that come to these high points. But the reality is, when we actually look at mountain ranges, they're, they're much different. Mountain ranges are majestic. They're beautiful. There's so much more than just peaks. There's hills. There's valleys. There's, there's high points, medium points, low points. There's all sorts of depth to a mountain range. You see, the, the more that I thought about this picture, the more that I thought about mountains, I realized, man, it's, it's that faith's mountaintops are the same way. Faith's mountaintops are often surrounded by hills and valleys. That in our own lives, in our own faith, those mountaintop moments are often surrounded by hills and valleys. And as I looked at, at Genesis, as I studied the life of Abraham, leading to his mountaintop experience on Mount Moriah, I felt like I saw the same thing in his life. That as we look at his life, we see what we experience in ours. A mix of ups and downs. Some that make a lot of sense. Some moments where we can really understand what God's doing. And other moments where you're kind of just confused wondering what is it that God is doing. But all of these moments in Abraham's life, preparing him for his mountaintop experience in Genesis 22, where God calls him to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And I imagine Abraham, a lot like us, amidst his story, often couldn't trace God's hand, but he would remind himself that he could trust God's heart. And that is my prayer for us today. 
that a lot of us, while familiar with Abraham, familiar with the story of Genesis 22, it can be tempting to almost graze over it, to shrug it off because of its familiarity, because of its obvious parallels. But I think that, that when we consider this story within the context of Abraham's life, God has some really sweet truths amidst some humble, humbling challenges in his life. And so, so would all of us this morning read the scriptures with fresh eyes and would we ask God to bless our time together? So if you will, just bow your head with me and pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word that it is true today just as much as it was true in Abraham's life. Father, I pray that you would, you would search our hearts this morning, Father, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would help us to know your truth in ways that only you can, and that we would fall more in love with you today through your word. It's in your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Okay, so for the sake of context, uh, before we get to Genesis 22, I feel like it's important that we go back to when we first meet Abraham as Abram. Okay, because if I just showed up to church this morning and was like, all right, guys, we're going to talk about how God called our old friend Abe to sacrifice his son. Let's dive right in. You'd kind of be like, all right, who let the student minister up there? We can't just talk about these kinds of events out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense, and it's really quite dramatic. So let's go back to Genesis 12 when Abram's life of faith begins. Right? This is the chapter where we meet Abram, and God calls him out of Ur, and for the first time establishes his promise that he would make Abram into a great nation. And so it says in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And verse 4 says, so Abram went. And I love that. Because in, the, in, in this, these three verses is this huge promise. What God is really saying is he is giving this promise that connects all the way to Jesus. That Jesus would ultimately be the one through whom all families would be blessed. And Abram, hearing all of this, is like, okay, let's go. And he uproots his entire life simply because the Lord told him to. So just from the top, let's go ahead and acknowledge, well done, Abram. Points at the beginning, mountaintop moment, right away. You hear God's call and you go. And this isn't the only time in Abram's life where God mentions this promise. It's, it's a promise of land, offspring, and blessing. In fact, God reassures Abram of this promise at least five more times. So we're going to cover those real briefly. The first time is just a few verses later. In verse 7, Abram has just finished his travels to the land of Canaan. He's, he's come from, from Ur, where he's from. And God, again, just simply reminds him, hey, this, this is the land that I am promising to your, your offspring. 
And then the second time is in Genesis 13. Abram traveled with his nephew Lot, and they're, they're splitting up the land. They're splitting up where they are, and they separate from one another. Lot takes for himself what is referred to as the best portion of the land. And then God goes ahead, and, and he tells Abram from the highest spot in Israel to, to sit and look around. He says, look north, look south, east, west, look all around you. At this 360-degree radius to your offspring, Abram, will I give this land, and will your family grow? God even says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And now for another time, some, some time has passed, and Abram actually finds himself in this re- relatively low moment emotionally. Now, he has just rescued his, his, uh, his nephew Lot um, from some kings of the north. There's a little, a little situation that happened there. Um, and he finds himself in this like deep reflection one night. And so the Lord comes to him in a vision. And this is in Genesis 15. And the Lord says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then the Lord said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This third interaction is such a tender moment between God and man. As Abram faces this moment of doubt towards God's promises, he's quite literally saying, God, you haven't provided me with a child. How how are my offspring supposed to be blessed and to take over all this land? And God, for the third time, reassures him of his word. And verse 6 is a sweet indication of Abram's faith. Where we see that Abram, with absolute certainty, believes that he would have a son. And then it's just the next day where God affirms his word for yet a fourth time. Still in chapter 15, verses 17 through 21, Abram obeys God's instructions to make preparations for what is known as a covenantal sacrifice. And then we see that God alone passes through these these animal parts. And it can be a confusing scene, but what, it, what it's signifying in, in simple terms is an unconditional covenant. That's what's happening in this moment. That in short, God is making a commitment. God is making a promise based solely on God's faithfulness. He makes a promise based solely on his own word that is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. And again, it is this promise of land, offspring, and blessing that we saw in Genesis 12. And finally, for a fifth time, God reassures his promise in Genesis 17. Abram is now 99 years old, and God changes his name to Abraham. And Abraham means father to many. And as if that wasn't enough, God even tells him the name of their yet-to-be-born son, Isaac. Now I get it. That was a lot, a lot of recap. 
We covered 25 years of Abraham's life in a matter of minutes. Very impactful, important years of his life. And I know it seems like a lot. The reality is, it is a lot. I mean, God reminds Abram over and over and over again of his promises. But if we really think about it, don't we need the same thing? Each and every single day that we would be reminded of God's new morning mercies, that I would be reminded of who Jesus is on my behalf so that I might not return to my old ways, right? So that when I come to these moments, these hills, these valleys, these low points, I know who God is. And if that doesn't make sense, let me, let me share just, just an example of a valley in my life. This is an example of a valley in my life. Um, I'm, now, let me be clear, okay? Because I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, did he just call his wife a valley? No, no, I'm not calling my wife a low point. If you look closely, she's holding a very delicious looking chocolate brownie. Okay, recently, I just completed something called 75 hard with a group of guys. Okay, now before you get all impressed thinking that I look just as huge as John does, um, I, I modified it a little bit. So the 75 hard program, it, it requires two workouts a day. The second workout being outside that you would read at least 10 pages a day, drink a gallon of water, which admittedly is the great equalizer. Um, and then the, uh, the other things that you have to do is choose like a strict diet. Now, I didn't go like super strict, but I did choose not to eat desserts. Desserts, and someone immediately got it. Someone immediately, and someone was like, oh my goodness. Guys, she's holding a brownie in that picture. Okay, that's about halfway through my 75 heart. And I'm like, man, what a low point. My wife, whom I love... I'm, you might be thinking, where is Ryan in that picture? He's behind the camera, not holding a brownie. <sighs> Still nightmares to this day, but, but I made it. I finished 75 hard, not eating dessert. And that's a simple example. That's a silly example. But truly, in that moment, I was faced with a challenge. Could I remember what my commitment is? Could I remember what is true in my life in that moment so that I would not be tempted by whatever was placed in front of me? And every single time I got to say no to dessert, it got easier and easier and easier. And the same is true in Abraham's life. As we study his life, we see in his life what we see in ours, that oftentimes there is this uneven faith. But in the midst of that, God reminds him of his goodness and his promises. That if we look at Abraham's life, as we look at ours, we notice this pattern. That Abraham often remembered the promise, but he forgot the promise keeper. Now this can be an interesting statement, and I'm gonna show you just three examples in his life where we see this to be true, and we'll find it quite relatable. The first is in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. We won't read it, but there is a famine in the land. And so Abram decides to go down to Egypt where he actually fears his life. He thinks that because he has a beautiful wife that they will kill him and take her for their own. So he tells Sarah, or Sarai at the time, to lie about being his sister instead. Now, thankfully, the Lord intervenes before there is an affair because of Abram's lies. And in short, 
Abram's combined decision to go to Egypt and then lie about his wife is an attempt to turn back to his own devices, to his own control. He doesn't deny God, but he pushes him out of the way, right? He says that, that when push comes to shove, he forgets his faith and he says, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take control. And he forgets how great God is. You see, at the first sign of trouble, Abraham quickly takes his eyes off of God and onto himself. And the reality is I could read that and say, hey, at the first line of trouble, I quickly take my eyes off of God and onto myself. The second example is in Genesis 16. Abram again shortcuts faith. Abram and Sarai have been in the promised land for 10 years. Sarai was 75 years old and her barrenness was a tragedy. In her time, people would actually view the fact that she hadn't had any children as a very, very sad failure. And so Sarai, she knew of God's promises to Abraham. She knew of God's promises for him to have an heir to his name, but she doubted her potential of being the mother. Okay, so the scheming begins, and Sarai gives her Egyptian uh, female servant to Abram to have a child. Now, sure, admittedly, this was her idea, but Abram's passivity is worse. Okay, Abram had spoken with God. Abraham had literally heard the voice of God, and his passivity shines forth. And so again, we see Abram take matters into his own hands. He knows the promise. He knows what God said, but he thinks God needs his help. That generally, Abraham, though trusting God, when pushed, ultimately decides that God needed his help. And again, man, although I generally trust God, when push comes to shove, maybe I know better than him. Maybe he needs my help. And finally, in Genesis 20, we see a repeat of Genesis 12. It's not explained why, but Abraham and Sarah relocate to Gerar, where in an almost identical manner, Abraham lies to King Abimelech about Sarah being his sister. Again, for the sake of his own life. And when, when confronted by, by Abimelech, Abimelech has this vision with the Lord, confronts Abraham, is like, why did you do this? Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And you see, it's there that we realize that fear often swayed Abraham towards old habits. And that's the one that sticks with me the most. How often in my own fear do I go back to my old ways? Do I forget the promise keeper? Do I forget the one who has changed my ways? Abraham is a very popular person in the Bible. He's a very well known throughout our people. We, we have heard of him, deservedly so. But when we take a deep look at anyone's life, Abraham's life or ours, we remember we're human. And that these three examples are just as true for him as they are for us, that in times of hardship, it can be easy to remember the promise, but forget the promise keeper. And so finally, we find ourselves at Mount Moriah. In Genesis 22, it's been about 25 years of Abraham's life. 
And admittedly, guys, I want to cut him some slack. Okay, we talked about it, guys. Faith's mountaintops are edged by these dark valleys. So I don't want to be surprised by Abraham's life. I mean, if we put ourselves in his shoes, if we take a moment, put ourselves in Abraham's shoes, wrapped up in his son Isaac, all in his son Isaac, the promised child, are promises of God regarding not only the future of Abraham's family, but more importantly, regarding the salvation of the human race. Pretty big deal. And so this is Abraham, and this is Isaac, and that is where we find ourselves in this story as we approach Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. So if you'll join with me in verse one, this is what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. God had revealed to Abraham the unique significance of Isaac, right? Isaac, who is now somewhat of a teenager, and he knew that the promises of God for them to be fulfilled, the life of Isaac must be preserved. And so it says God tested Abraham, and the test is very clear. You see, the promise of God required that Isaac should live while the command of God demanded that he die. Well, that's confusing and contradictory at best, right? This is the test. Now, now here's the reality. We've, we've looked at Abraham's life. Abraham had abandoned his faith at much lesser dilemmas. But in Genesis 22, he's up for the challenge because the reality is God is in the business of changing lives. And so we, we read Abraham's story. We look at his past and we see him struggle. What we don't realize is that God is writing Abraham's story and God is watching him grow through every hardship, through every test where Abraham failed, led him to this mountaintop experience. And so let's see how he'll continue to respond. Continuing in verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, uh, my father, he said to him, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire in the wood, uh, uh, where's, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. In three days they traveled together, one troubled father, one uncertain son, Okay, and Abraham says this very unique thing. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is really significant. You can glaze over this. 
Okay? Only Abraham knew the significance of what he was saying in this moment. God had commanded him to sacrifice his son, yet Abraham had the audacity to say that they would both return. There's, there's, a, there's a passage in Hebrews where the writer helps us understand this, where he basically helps us see the greatness of Abraham's faith. He helps us to understand that Abraham believed past his questions in this moment. Abraham remembered God's promises that depended on Isaac's life, the life of the boy he was supposed to kill, and he believed that somehow, some way, even if by resurrecting the dead, God would be faithful to his word. Now, admittedly, on the outside, Abraham's behavior seems quite reckless, a little crazy. He even tells his son, he's like, ah, don't worry about it. Like the lamb will come. God will provide the lamb. And Abraham's probably like, ah, I really hope God will provide the lamb. Um, He's got all these questions, but in the midst of it, Abraham is locked in, focused on God's promise. You see, a tested faith in God pushes on, not knowing how or why or where or when, but knowing who. That was true of Abraham's faith because in this moment, in this test, he remembered not only the promise, but the promise keeper. Because he remembered who. And so let's find out how far his faith goes. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But as the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And thus we are introduced to the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I mean, what demonstrated faith? Abraham builds the altar, right? He binds Isaac. He places him on the wood. And just before he can finish the offering, he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham sees God's gracious provision of a substitute for Isaac. In total honesty, when we read this story, it can bring a lot of questions. It can be really easy to, to look at this story and, and try to you know poke holes. Like, what kind of God would do this? Who, who would ask a, such a faithful follower to sacrifice their son? Why in the world would he do that? And I think there's a sweetness to it. There's a sweetness to the fact that God asks us to wrestle with this story because because there's a truth in it. 
You see that in the end, we see that the God who tests is also the God who provides. The tester is the provider. Both of these things are true of God. The reality is that they can only be understood by faith. Right, all of us in these moments of our lives feeling hardship, right, feeling test. God calls this a test. So I'm not gonna pretend like there aren't other people in this room that are being tested, that have been tested, that will be tested. It's in the test when by faith we might see God is our provider. Jehovah Jireh is a name, it, it doesn't say the Lord did provide. It actually says that it's the Lord will provide. Right, this name of God doesn't, it doesn't remember a past experience. It actually looks forward to a future action. And to us, it refers to a hill called Calvary where God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That Jesus, fully God, fully man, stepped into our shoes on this earth, in our brokenness, completely perfect, sinless, tested in every which way that we have been tested, yet without sin, dying a torturous death on the cross, only to be buried and yet raised to life three days later so that Jesus might sit at the right hand of God so that we might look to God and say to him, oh Lord, and now I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, that God provided the perfect substitute there's so much in this story. So many pieces of Abraham's life piling up one on another. I kept wondering, man, what, what is it that you have for us, God? What is it that you would want to show me today? And I kept coming back to this question. Hey, Ryan, if God took blank away, would he still be good? That's the question. If God took whatever it is, maybe it's your financial security, maybe it's the health of your family, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever it is. Sometimes for me, it's even just confidence in myself. But if God took it away, would he still be good? Here's the hint, the answer is yes. But oftentimes, I don't know if I believe it. And so as we close today, I wanna to invite you guys up. We're gonna sing in response. I wanna invite you guys up to these altars. What Isaacs are God, is God calling you to lay down today? What is God asking you to lay down before him as an act of faith to trust him in his goodness today? That you might fall more in love with him and be ready for the hills and valleys that he has coming in your direction. So pray with me. Father, I acknowledge that man, in the midst of this story, Lord, we, we are all feeling different ways, God, that there are some of us that are, that are feeling good, Lord. 
that I might feel like I'm on a mountaintop right now, that I'm feeling good. I have acted in faith, God. I have seen your goodness. Lord, I pray for us. Lord, I pray that we would, we would keep our eyes on the promise keeper. Lord, that we would not forget who provided for us. Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, who are in the thick of it. Lord, that are in the moment right now where they can't see you and they might be thinking like Abraham, why on earth would you put me through this, God? Father, I pray that their faith would be encouraged, Lord, not in themselves, but in the God in whom their faith is placed. Father, that you are the provider and you showed this in Jesus and you will show it in every single aspect of our lives. So help us to trust you. And we pray all of this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.